Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. Welcome to The Payoff. I'm Chris Duffy. And I'm Antonia Cerejido. The Payoff is your awesome audio companion to all the great business and personal finance coverage from Mike, which you can find at mike.com slash the payoff. So we've been doing this show for a little while, and we thought it was about time that we really dug into the personal part of personal finance. Right, Antonia? Yes. <laughs> I can tell you're super excited about this episode. Well, no, I, I am excited about this episode, but um, this one is very personal. It's about dating, relationships, and finance, and how those things intermix, and yeah. Valentine's just came. and you, you know. it's, it's a lot of stuff that people might have been thinking about, but maybe don't want to talk about. Um, but since this is the payoff, we're not just going to talk about romance. We're interested in something much sexier. <laughs> how money overlaps with our love lives, for richer or poorer, for better or worse. And to jump right into that, we're going to start off as we do each episode with our opening segment that we like to call, Oh, oh no! no! Which is how both of us normally feel when we have to talk about money. Joint bank accounts? Oh, no! Deciding who pays the check on a date? Oh, no! Having a hidden credit card that's just one sign of your secret financial double life? Oh, no! Wait, what? <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But first, we're going to take you into our actual 100% real love lives. I recorded a first date. And I recorded Valentine's Day with my wife. And I can't believe we're going to let them hear this. Oh, I can. I have no secrets or shame. And I only have secrets and shame. <laughs> we're going to take you behind the scenes of our own worlds of love, relationships, and money. And then, since we're talking about how money plays a role in love and attraction, we're also going to dive deep into the number one way that banks and institutions decide if you're sexy. Your credit score. It's the hotter knot of finance, and we've got an expert who's going to help us figure out what it takes to get our credit scores into shape. And then we're going to move on to The Big Interview, where we're going to lighten things up a little bit with a visit from author and comedian Maeve Higgins. We'll find out what she thinks about her finances, how money plays a role in her love life, and what it's been like to work in America since she immigrated from Ireland. And for our final segment, The Bottom Line, remember those secret credit cards I mentioned a minute ago? We've got a story about a recent study that revealed just how many Americans are hiding financial info from their partners. And we'll get some extra tips for how to talk about money with your special someone or a potential future special someone. Stick around. All right, here we go with a segment where we confront and get over our worries and confusion about something in the world of money. You know, the kind of financial stuff that usually makes you go, oh, oh no! For this episode, it's all about love, money, and the many ways they intersect. Like on first dates, for example. Who pays? How much? It can be totally crazy, and what are the rules? Also, it can be expensive, especially in a place like New York City, where the average date, two movie tickets, two drinks, two cappuccinos, and a dinner for two sets spenders back $174, according to a study by online dating site Zusk. The least expensive night out, incidentally, is in Indiana, where that same date costs only $83. 
Okay, so Chris and I have a lot in common, but one way in which our lives are very different is that I'm single. And I'm married, so we've got both ends of the relationship spectrum covered. And for this episode, we decided we were going to dive into the intersection of love and money, and I can't believe we're doing this, but I asked Chris to set me up on a date, and then... I recorded parts of it. I have never wanted to hear a sound clip more. I actually don't know what happened on the date I set you up on, and I am so curious. So what are you going to play us? So the weird money moment in a date happens at the end when the check comes. And so my date, Phil, and I were comparing our date to being on The Bachelor when the bill arrived. And I apologize because it was super loud in there. But here's the tape. This is like the closest I've ever been to like being on The Bachelor. I feel like this is the closest I've come. The single. Or The Bachelorette. Yeah, would be more either one. Right. Though it's like in some random empty restaurant. That's true. It's super empty, which is a very natural setting. Super natural setting for me to figure out which of these 20 women I want. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. I got it. You sure? Yeah. You positive? Positive. Okay. Ooh, a double ask. <laughs> yeah, I, okay, so let's break it down. It was. <laughs> that may have seemed like a very normal, not stressful situation, but there is a lot of play going on, which is that I think that as the woman, you need to ask to, to split it or else you're a bad person. Yeah, I've also always felt like, you know, splitting it is a good move, right? It's like you offer, but then if the person is like, are you sure? Double ask. Then I'm always like, okay, let's split it. Yeah, but you, okay, you're, you are married. Yeah, and you, makes it easier to split. That's for sure. <laughs> and you met your wife in college. So there weren't a lot of opportunities for you to be like first date in New York City situation. No, no. I was more like, would you like me to swipe you into the dining hall? And she was like, actually, we're on the same meal plan. So no, thank you. But I feel like I double asked. If he had said like, let's split it, that would have been cool. It was also it ended up being like a coffee snack date, not like a dinner date because it's New York and people are very busy. Yeah. But I think that it all happened like the kind of appropriate way things happen, which is like both people were very willing to pay for it. Mm. So I didn't tell him why I was recording the date. I just told him that it was like a social experiment. And so he had no idea what I was looking for. And so after the date, we went outside the restaurant and I like revealed to him what the recording was for. For a recap, Phil offered to pay. And then I was like, are you sure? And then he was like, yes. And that's how it went down. (laughs) Uh, what is your typical, what do you, like, what do you, what is your go-to move vis-a-vis bill splitting? Mm. Generally, I, I offer and, and do pay. Yeah. Um, I think it's nice. You know, and sometimes you're with someone and it's clear that, like, they really don't want that, and then that's totally fine. Yeah. Um, but if I am allowed to, I will pay. And what about after that? Um, What's the rule? I don't know. It's gray. Um, I think it, like, that's probably not a sustainable all the way through thing. So in any serious relationship I've had, there's usually at some point. A give and take. A give and take. And usually I'm not a big fan of the, like, two credit card. That just feels very kind of, uh, I don't know. It's a long game. I like to think of. You rather do like you know. one pays for one and then the other pays for the other? Absolutely. As like a gesture? Absolutely. That's nice. Wow. Uh, first of all, congratulations on having like a surprisingly coherent analysis of the date right after you were <laughs> on it. That's crazy. What do you mean? Like, uh, normally for me after a date, 
I well, again, it's been a long time, but I can't imagine I would have been able to like process and be like, here's what I typically do, and here's what just happened. I would have been like, um, uh, so do you like me? What what happens? Yeah, you're not like that. <laughs> That's not you. I I don't know. I need. I mean, yeah. Honestly, it didn't. Uh, you can't tell from the tape recordings, but I was so nervous. I came into the date because I'd never recorded a date, and I was like. Also, I've never been set up before. This is the first time I've ever been set up. Really? <laughs> yes. So I walked into the restaurant and I just knocked over my chair. And then <laughs> I also knocked it over on my way out. And I was just like a hot mess. But Phil is very nice. And he, he told was... me afterwards, that he, he said that I, this could have been so weird, but it was a great day. I'm, <laughs> I'm really happy to hear that. I'm <laughs> But yeah, it was great. But I, but I think that bill splitting is something that's typically stressful. And to Phil's credit, it was very not stressful. Okay, so that was your experience on a first date. And I'm a few years older than you, and I'm married. So there's no more awkward, charming mysteries about who's going to pay for our <laughs> date when I go. Um, but that doesn't mean that married people don't face their own financial decisions. Like, how do you manage money as two separate people with different incomes? Should you have one joint bank account? Should you share credit cards? Um, I sat down with my wife. Actually, on Valentine's Day, which is a classic romantic married person thing to do, discuss finances on Valentine's Day. And uh, here's a bit about what we talked about. Hey, this is Chris, and I'm here with my wife, Molly. Hello. Um, Happy Valentine's Day, Molly. It is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Yeah, are you excited to talk about personal finance? What could be more romantic? (laughs) Yeah. So um, we've been married for seven months, and... What do we have that's joint finances now? We have a credit card, right? That's it. We have a credit card and we have a savings account for a down payment. So I guess the thing that I'm wondering about is we're about to move into a new apartment and we pay rent, but right now we both like write checks for rent. I don't know. With all of our stuff, it just seems like, should we have a joint checking account? Yeah, I think I'm open to it, but I also think that you know, one of the only things that we would use it for would be the rent check. And it seems kind of a hassle to open up an account specifically for rent when everything else we do separately or that we can do with our credit card. We use our credit card, like when we go out to eat, we want to split things, we use that. Or when we're making payments for food, we use that. Yeah, and you know, one thing that I kind of like is I kind of like it being... Um, independent finances like it's kind of nice that like i have my money and you have your money it seems like we're on the same page that we should just both be responsible but also independent i'm cool with that and i think as as soon as we make another major life change like you know buy a house have a baby like all that sort of things i think we can revisit it but i'm good with it for now that is, it was, it actually was really crazy listening to that conversation. Really? It felt like I was like listening to like my parents talk or something. Yeah. Well, I hope that uh, someday <laughs> you can have our Valentine's Day as electrically romantic as that one. <laughs> okay. So that was our experience with how money can affect our love lives. Um, but it turns out that without us even knowing it, banks and financial institutions have been keeping tabs on both of us, on everyone really, and deciding whether they want to get into bed with us. So if you need a loan, a credit card, or to rent an apartment, chances are a bank is going to decide if you're attractive by checking out your credit score. But what even is a credit score? And how can I find mine out and also make it better? For that, we thought we'd call up an expert, Libby Kimsey, credit counselor and personal finance smarty pants. And she's here with us now. Hi, Libby. Hi. How are you guys doing? We're great. Thanks so much for talking to us. I'm happy to be here. 
Let's just start with the most basic thing. What is a credit score? Yeah, so a credit score is a number that's crunched down by one of a variety of algorithm companies that are out there. The most popular one being FICO, the Fair Isaac Corporation. So FICO is giving you the score, or rather, in most cases, giving it to the bank, giving it to the credit card company. And it's based on the information that the credit bureaus have on you. Credit bureaus are organizations like TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian. And they've been collecting information every month for years on most of us. And then FICO is the company that's going to be crunching that down into one number. So what's a good score? So if we're if we're looking at a, a FICO 8 or a FICO 9, which is going to be the most popular credit score out there, it's good to have above a 680. Uh, it's awesome to have above a 700. But anything above 600, above 650, these are different thresholds that will help you get the best interest rates. And What's like the lowest you could possibly have? Like, what if you are a person who, like, the banks have seen you just burning a pile of money and then <laughs> running through it, and that's the only financial history you've ever had? So that person is not going to have a credit score at all. And we see that all the time where someone just doesn't have a score. So it's lower. It's not even zero. It's just, like, not applicable? It's just not applicable. So they're going to want you to have had a financial trade line, like a credit card, at least one open for at least six months in order to even get a score. And what's a perfect score? Uh, they say that it's possible to get an 850, but I've, I've never seen anything close to that. I've never seen anything in the, in the 800s. And so how do you find out what your score is? So that is always, always a big question. There are groups out there like creditkarma.com, which will give you a number that's very close to what the bank's seeing, but it's not gonna be exactly the same hard for a consumer to see exactly what the number is that the bank's seeing. And one of the only ways to do it, you go to myfico.com, which is the website for the Fair Isaac Corporation, going to myfico.com, and you can purchase your own credit score. And maybe this is an obvious question, but like, other than just wanting to be rated highly, like everyone wants, I always want to get the highest score I can get. But like, why, why do I care about this? Why does this matter? Sure. So it, it's just a tool for achieving other financial goals you have. So for some people, owning a house is really important. For some people, they want to have different options to get a car instead of saving up cash to make that new car purchase. So when you want a loan, when you want an institution to loan you money, the credit score is the way they determine how risky you are. What are the odds that they're going to get their money back from you? So what are like the big mistakes that people make that screws up their credit? The one I see the most is... So you get the credit card and it says, here, you've got a credit limit of $5,000. And people hear that and then they say, oh, so if I'm borrowing $4,000, then I'm fine. But that's really not the case. You really want to keep it to under 30% of that credit limit. So the advice I give is that when you get that card and they say your credit limit's 5000 just cut that, divide that by three right away and mentally say this card has a limit of $1,500 and never go above that. And what are like the three easiest ways that we could raise our credit score if we're out there? Someone's listening to this and they want to get a higher credit score. Sure. So a lot of my advice is geared towards people who have no credit or bad credit and are trying to get to acceptable. My first tip for for people who are in that bad credit score range is don't start with your collections. It's really tempting to say, oh, well, there's that old phone bill I have and there's the money I owe the electric company. But don't get distracted by that because the damage has already been done with those collections. Really focus on what's what's active right now. And for some people, they've been burned in the past by this land of credit and they don't have any new positive information going in. 
So that's number one, is make sure that you have information going in each month that tells the credit card companies that you're, you're a good bet. So that might be opening uh, a secured credit card that might be getting a card at a retail store, you know, the, the Target, the Macy's, the gas companies, and making sure that you have good information going in every month. And once you've got one card, then to uh, really get going, you want to have a couple different types of credit. So that might be an installment loan, a car loan, a student loan. You know, student loans, they're not great in a lot of ways, but it does mean that you have a different type of credit, a different kind of information going in each month. So just having that credit card and the student loan is a good combination to get on the right path. And what about if we are someone who kind of, you already have pretty good credit and you want to step it up to the next level? Sure. So then I'm assuming that you have a, a number of active accounts that you're making your payments every month. Then I'd really focus on your, the jargon for it is your uh, credit utilization ratios on your active trade lines. And what I mean by that is you've got those, maybe you've got three different credit cards and uh, making sure that your balances are under that 30% mark. So if you've got one that creeps up to halfway, pay that one down first, get it to under 30%. And then the other thing to consider, so for this one, you'd probably go to annualcreditreport.com and you'd get a copy of the information that the bureaus have on you, that TransUnion, that Equifax, that Experian have. And then you see, oh, look at that credit card. Oh yeah, that one time I did, you know, hit a rough spot. My my high credit limit is up to $7,000 on an $8,000 card. Well, one tip I have for you then is to call up that credit card company and ask them to raise your credit limit because then it's going to reflect that instead of being at 80% used, you might be able to get it down to 30% used. And then that information is going to stay with the card for years to come. And it's going to show that you've been a responsible user of that card. Dang, thanks. This is like a lot of great advice. How do you know all of this, Libby? Uh, so I've been working at a group called Capital Good Fund for six years now. We're a financial change organization and I have learned learned a lot. But my number one tip is just don't panic. There's It's easy to get overwhelmed. So just spend a little time learning today. Pick one action item for this week. And for a lot of people, I'd start with going to annualcreditreport.com and just verifying what is it that the bureaus already have on you? And is that information accurate? You need to dispute any errors and use that to guide your action plan going forward. And uh, Libby, since we're on this episode today, we were talking a lot about uh, romance and relationships and also money. Um, do you feel like having a better credit score is something that makes someone sexier? <laughs> So my advice for people in relationships where uh, you've got different financial histories, your credit scores look different, the information on your reports look different, don't be afraid about going after new credit in just one person's name. I think there's this, this fantasy that when you're married, you're going to have all the accounts in, under your, both of your names together. But that doesn't make sense for a lot of couples. So in my relationship, you know, we kind of split it up where the car's in his name, the house is in my name. And that really allows us to make the most of our different financial histories. All right. Well, thank you so much, Libby, for giving us your advice. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, thanks so much. Libby Kimsey from the Capital Good Fund. What a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, guys. Oh, awesome. That was so great talking to Libby. Um, I, I feel so much better about love and money and also my credit score now. Uh, <laughs> so it's time for a short break. But when we come back, we're going to shift gears and talk with comedian Maeve Higgins. She's going to tell us about the differences between finances in her native Ireland and her adopted hometown, New York City. She'll also fill us in on the most romantic way to spend your money. You don't want to miss this.
Welcome back. Joining us now is Maeve Higgins, comedian, author, and host of the podcast Maeve in America, where she shares funny, beautiful, and sometimes maddening immigration stories told by the people who live them. Maeve, thank you so much for joining us as we talk about love and money. Thank you for having me. Um, So how do you think, I mean, I know you, we're actual friends, Mm -hmm. but how do you think that money and finances affect your love life? Okay, so when I moved to New York, I noticed that it was like a huge thing in relationships. And like men would tell me, straight guys would tell me that like it was on them to like seem rich. Really? (laughs) I thought that was insane. And I was also like, wait, though, it's, you know, that was three years ago. I was like, it's 2014. Women are earning and like we don't need that. It surprised me by like how like heteronormative and like weirdly traditional the role that money played in dating. And it's not like that in Ireland? Not really. I mean, Ireland is like a tricky one because first of all, we're all related to each other. <laughs> so that's the biggest problem in There's dating. Not really, <laughs> there's not, it's not like the same dating culture where you kind of like meet up and like kind of present your case. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Like that doesn't happen what do you? Wait, I'm sorry. What do you mean by meet up and present your case? I mean, like, I feel like here dating is very like straightforward. It's like, this is me. This is what I do. This is where I stand socially. Like, this is where I fit into things. You want it? <laughs> um, whereas like at home, it's like much more blurry. Okay. So that's, that's like love life specifically with finances, but how are finances and money different in Ireland than they are here? We have a different currency. Is one major thing. <laughs> so I mean, how- your money looks different, <laughs> um, and you're much safer there because we have unemployment benefits and like maternity leave, and like you'll be taken care of mm. much more than in here in the U.S. Where if you like stop earning for whatever reason, you're kind of doomed, and that's like something that I think I fell into the trap when I first moved to New York, where I was like. Because it's such a capitalist city. Like, obviously, we're here in, like, <laughs> one yeah. world. It's we record very... in one World Trade Center, if you didn't know that. We were right. on the no, 82nd Street. I didn't Ac- know that. I mean, I'm sitting here. <laughs> oh, you're sitting here. That's how you got here. <laughs> yeah. But we were on the 82nd floor looking out over all of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you're, like, an artist or a creative person and then you're um, you're in a place like this where it's, like, what, where, what's your apartment like? You know, where are you working? Like, what media job? Whatever then it's really easy to lose sight of like, oh, wait, though, I just want to make this thing and I want to support other people who make this thing. And um, it, it's kind of like you have to fight to remember that like creativity is worth something. Hmm. Um, so that's been something. And I would say like going back to the dating thing, um, for me, it's not like the first question I ask, but I try and suss out the person's um attitude to that mm. and I'm so not interested in someone who's just like trying to get rich <laughs> yeah themselves that's like so boring and it's so dated to me and it's so small-minded and um, so that's something that like I would probably you know put a put a stop to early well so on on that note then what's the most romantic way that someone can spend money do you think I think it's traveling either to see you like uh when I was seeing someone who lived in a different city um, I thought that meant a lot, like to take time off work and come see me or to travel together. Have you ever had a situation in which there was an awkwardness about money? Either you made mm-hmm. more than them or they made more than you or any like awkward? No, I mean, now I think that could start happening because like I'm doing doing well in my career again I think like in our career Chris like there's like ups and downs right because like I do comedy writing it depends if you get a big commission a big job or not 
so it can be really up and down right now i'm like doing well and i'm but i'm not i'm not dating anybody at the moment so it's fine but i am like hmm if i started going out with like a you know a guy with less especially in the same business as me <laughs> um that might lead to some that would be hard i think why oh because i think that like in our business, it's like very obvious who's doing well and who's not. And it does not bother me. Like genuinely, I have like other insecurities and other stuff that, that goes on with me. But like the money thing like doesn't bother me. Like I don't care if like you're making money or not in this business because like I understand. But I think it's definitely still a male female thing where not for every man, but I think for a lot of men, they're just a bit thrown by like a woman earning more than them in the same in the same industry. So you're here on an extraordinary alien visa. Yes. Um, so what's it like having your ability to work be contingent on the U.S. government recognizing you as extraordinary? <laughs> yeah. So to get the visa that I'm on, which is an O-1, you have to prove, you know, that you can do something that American citizen can't. You win a prize, like judge others in your industry. Like there's like all these criteria. I get letters from your peers or people high up in your industry. And you also have to prove your earning potential. Um, really? Like, I didn't know you had to prove your earning potential. Yeah. I mean, so I got this visa almost three years ago. It's a three-year visa, so it's up for renewal this year. Wow. My lawyers focused more on, like, my uh, other elements of my career, but I did have to say how much I earned. Yeah. But there's, like, other considerations with that visa, too. For example, I've been, like, critical of this administration. I've been on holidays to Iran. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know if I'm going to get that visa again. Really? Oh, that's I so scary. I don't know. Well, also, in your podcast, you talk to immigrants all over the country who are here. And how do you think that or has that changed the way that you think about money at all or, or finances, the way that they're living their lives here? I think it's a really interesting way to see America like through immigrants eyes and through their financial lives, actually, like because there's so many different categories, right? Like immigrants come from all over. I know about like Irish kids and Indian kids. When I say kids, like 23-year-olds, like just finished college, who tech companies are like courting and they like fly them first class and they compensate them really aggressively. And they're like vying for these people and like organizing all their visas and where they live and just like bringing them to Seattle, bringing, you know, wherever, bringing them to San Francisco. And that's like one class of immigrants. There's another one. There's an interesting visa. I think it's an E-something visa that you can basically pay for where, um, you know, there's a set amount of them every year. Like the Chinese quota gets sold up in the first few days of every year where it's basically like you invest a million dollars in like a failing part of New York in property and then you kind of get your green card, not just a visa, you get a green card, which is like to to some people a million dollars is not a lot of money to mm. be able to have, you know, be on a path to citizenship here. And then there's, you know, immigrants like, you know, the kind of more, I guess, typical story that you'd hear where you can be doing very well in your home country you can be a professional like a middle-class person and then you come here and your qualifications don't count for anything and like you have to start over so we've definitely you know I, ha I had a guest on my show who um who was uh you know middle-class kid from Lagos Nigeria her dad and her moved here after a divorce and like she came from somewhere where she had like a maid and a gardener and then she started it over with her dad, who was like high powered businessman mm. who like basically worked as a janitor here. Mm -hmm. So she was cleaning toilets like it was that much of a dip. And like then she found her way back up again. Um, but I think that's quite a common story where like you get here and you're kind of on the lowest on the lowest rung. 
but that said, like there's such opportunities here for mobility for people coming from other countries, right? Like if you move here from another country um, that mightn't allow you access to like education if you're a woman or, and then at least you can do that here. Mm. So there's more opportunities here for people from other countries. I, I want to ask you a couple of uh, personal questions about money too. Okay. So um, what's one way that you personally are very good with money? Oh, um, I'm just remembering I have like an envelope full of cash in my bag. <laughs> that does not seem like a way you're good with money. That's, that seems like a way that you are terrible with money and just asking to be robbed. Likely by me during this show. Um, yeah, I get there's like one show a month that I do that I get paid in cash. And I like having cash on me, like mm-hmm. some kind of uh, my my grand aunt or something. <laughs> in an envelope. It's such like an old lady thing to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I... I, I mean, I have it on me because I mean to go to the bank or whatever and put it in there. Mm-hmm. But, but how I long also... have you had that envelope? Oh, I did the show. Five days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I've um, been meaning to go to the bank for nearly a week. <laughs> so I would say this is maybe a bit cerebral, but like I think the way I'm good with money is that I don't let it like guide my career decisions. And that might not work for everybody, but like I think for like an artistic person, like a creative in the creative industry, like writing and comedy, that's helped me Um, because I feel like even moving to America, I took a big dip in my earnings because like I was like doing fine in Ireland and you were you were on TV all the time. Right, exactly. You're an Irish celebrity. (laughs) I'm an Irish celebrity. (laughs) And I when I've told Irish people that I know you, they've been like, wow, (laughs) Chris. (laughs) <laughs> Maeve Higgins. Yeah, I'm like a... Whereas when I tell Americans I know you, they're like, spell that name. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, but I think t- following my curiosity and being like more open to like, wait, I want to try this or I want to experiment with that. That's actually been a, been better for me long term than being like, I'm going to stay here and earn what I can and like be happy with that and try and collect that. Like taking risks, I suppose, is something that I'm good at with money and not letting it like own me. Maeve Higgins, thank you so much for giving us an international perspective. Sure. They call me Global Higgins. Exactly. Thanks, <laughs> and, Global and the Higgins. S, the S is a dollar sign. <laughs> Very nice. But Maeve, actually, where where can people hear your podcast and where can they find more about your work? It's called Maeve in America. And I'm also Maeve in America on Instagram. M-A-E-V-E yeah. in America. Yeah. And Maeve Higgins at Twitter. Or, you know, on Twitter. Thank you for having me. Time now for our final segment, The Bottom Line, where we take a look at a story from the world of business news and break down why you should care and how it's going to affect your bank balance and your life as a whole. So we've looked at how people who are dating talk about money and also how people who are married talk about money. But what about people who are not talking about money? It ends up that millions of Americans are committing what's called financial infidelity. Ooh. Yeah, and that means that they're keeping a major credit card or bank account (sighs) secret. In fact, it might be as many as 12 million Americans, and that's according to a recent story from The Payoff. To learn more about that, we're going to call up James Denon, the Payoff reporter who wrote that story, to explain what this story means, why we should care, and what we can do to avoid the perils that financial infidelity can bring. Hello, this is James. Hey, James. Thanks so much for talking with us. 
Oh, yeah, of course. No problem. Okay, so 12 million Americans are doing financial infidelity. Like, what does that mean? So um, financial infidelity was the name that CreditCards.com came up to describe this kind of behavior where you were keeping some sort of big financial secret from your spouse or significant other. And two um, main ones that they looked for were keeping like a big credit card secret or keeping a bank account secret. So is it ever that the financial secret is a good secret? Or is it <laughs> is it always like, oh, by the way, I have thousands of dollars of debt? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the thing. And that's why it's kind of an interesting question, because um, there's obviously... You'd have to imagine more than, you know, a few guys saving up for an engagement ring, for instance. And then also, you know, it's not really uncommon at all for, you know, young people to move in together before they get married anymore. Um, and so, you know, those those could be uh, theoretically, um, you know, bank accounts that they're just using for their personal stuff. But, you know, the, the fact that they're keeping it secret suggests that it's, it's there's there's something they're trying to hide there. And is it mostly men? That's actually not clear from the survey. Um, they didn't really control. Interesting. But is it clear from Antonio's tone? <laughs> I'm just trying to understand, like, why this is a lot of people. I mean, 12 million people is a lot of people out there. Like, do you think that the reason these bank accounts are secret is because they are it's like an M. Night Shyamalan twist in the relationship, or is it that just people are very uncomfortable and awkward talking about money? Um, well, there's definitely both. You know, I think there's a lot of ambiguity about, you know, when you're to bring up and start talking about money when you're in a relationship. You know, I've talked to a lot of couples and financial planners about this. You know, there's a really big spectrum, right? So there's the type of people who feel totally comfortable talking about how much student debt they have on like a first or second date whereas like general population would probably find that a little bit uncouth and so the problem arises right is where you get these mismatches and you get these people who feel the need for a very high degree of transparency about one another's finances and then you've also got you know half the country who would have trouble coming up with four hundred dollars uh, in an emergency and they're probably less enthused to break out their credit report on a first or second date so how do you start to talk about money with your yeah, I mean, I've talked to a few psychologists about this. It's a common question. I think the, the really important thing um, to try and do is is to try and avoid talking about money for the first time in a situation where it's bad. So you don't want the instigator for the conversation to be, you know, a credit card collection call that, that your spouse, you know, hears on the answering machine. Um, or you don't want to start with a good one. Yeah, <laughs> you, you want to start with something. Like, hey, I earned $5 in interest this year. Exactly. Yeah. You <laughs> want to do it. I think there are a few ways that people try and do that. Um, one of them is, is, is trying to create a schedule, right? So you're talking, talking about this stuff because it's, it's our money talk about day and not because there's some sort of problem you're dealing with. Um, Ooh, money talk about day. Do you classic, do that with Molly? Yeah, I'm going to start that. Put that on the calendar. It's a <laughs> classic catchy title, money talk about day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what? On the flip side, do you think there's such a thing as too much financial couple transparency, shared online banking passwords, something like that? Yeah, that's a really good example. I mean, one of the people I talked to when I was working on the story was a company called Simple, which has these new shared bank accounts. And they like they send you notifications every time someone in the couple is like uses the bank account. And at first, that seems like a little crazy to me. Like, you know, do I really need you yeah. know my girlfriend to know I bought a coffee today or I had that extra round before heading home. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there is, there is some people on the flip side, they really take comfort in knowing, you know, okay, so 
you know, they're not running late at work. They're just having another drink or, oh, they've already bought groceries on the way home. I don't have to do that. So I think, yeah, I think the important thing is to just make sure you're on the same page. All right. Well, James, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks. Have a good one, guys. So it, it seems like the bottom line is that 12 million people are hiding stuff and maybe we should just be talking to our partners more about money. Or are not partners that could be potential future partners for some of us. Okay, Chris? Yeah, okay. You should be talking to everyone about money. I mean, honestly, in every episode of the show, it seems like that's what we've learned. And maybe that's the point of the show for us is like, here's all the ways in which we're afraid to talk about money. But in fact, you can't get better at it unless you talk about it. Totally. That's it for this episode. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is from Breakmaster Cylinder, and our producer is Alan Haberchak. Thank you, Alan, and thanks so much to everyone for listening. If you want to help us out, you can also do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. Seriously, you have no idea how much those ratings and reviews help us get the word out. Please let us know what you think. Plus, if you have ideas for what you think we should talk about in future episodes, email us at payoffpod at mike.com. Also, you can find out more about us on Twitter at The Payoff by Mike or online at mike.com slash The Payoff. See you next time. Thank you.